Greetings and salutations. Welcome to Life and Books and Everything. I'm Kevin DeYoung. Glad to have you here. I'm going to introduce my guest in just a moment, Derek Thomas, who I'm very glad to have with us. But I do want to thank our sponsor, Crossway, and mention this new book by Michael Reeves called Evangelical Pharisees, The Gospel as Cure for the Church's Hypocrisy. Obviously, more issues than just Phariseeism in the church, and yet that's a perennial one. And in this book, uh, Mike studies three essentials of Christian doctrine that Pharisees misunderstand their approach to Scripture, understanding of salvation, and disregard of regeneration. So, that's a new Crossway book. Grateful to Crossway for their support of life and books and everything. And uh, Michael Reeves' books are always edifying. Derek Thomas is the senior minister at First Presbyterian Church in Columbia, South Carolina, and he's from the great land of Wales. We'll talk about that in a moment and give a little bit more of his background. Derek, thank you for joining us on this sunny Carolina morning. Uh, It's a great pleasure, and it's uh, a cloudless guy here in Columbia today, so it's wonderful. Yeah, just a, an hour and a half south of here. Now, uh, you, you had you have an evening service, we have an evening service, so if your scruples allow after the evening service, did you watch any of the Super Bowl? No. <laughs> it wasn't you, anything, anything to do with scruples, but I, I... Just don't care? I just was not invested. I don't well, know. I, w- I was going to glimpse it for five minutes, but actually never got around. Well, that's quite all right. Better, better for you. What uh, are you? Do you do you care about rugby, golf? What are you? Are you into something? Yes, I quite like watching golf, and it was the um, Phoenix uh, last weekend, Scott, yeah. Scottsdale in Arizona, and um, it has that crazy sixteenth hole where people throw. Bottles and yeah, cans yeah. and beer mugs and stuff. Whenever anybody gets a hole in one, although I don't think there was a hole in one uh, this year. But Ricky Fowler got a hole. He had an ace on some some such yes. hole. I don't know. Yes, yeah, so this sort of background for a good Sunday afternoon nap. And it was nice to see Scotty Scheffler win, since he's a member of PCPC in Dallas. Is he a member there? Yes, and the last time he won a tournament. Uh, he was in church the following Sunday. So I think he's a, you know, go- golfers. I, re- I remember asking Sinclair about golfers and, and Christianity and not being able to attend church since the last days or was yeah. that Sunday. And he just said, it's their job. Like like nursing or, or yeah. you know, electricity workers who work on Sunday. That was his answer. Well, good. If it's good enough for Sinclair, <laughs> good enough for me. Uh, here around Charlotte, we uh, we like to root for Webb Simpson. He's a he's a good Christian. Doesn't go to to Christ Covenant, but we, we got a lot of friends. Actually, one of our I forget which child because I have nine of them, but was born at the hospital the same time that Webb and his wife were having a child just down the hall. And so we we met in the cafeteria, and my kids got to say hi to. The famous golfer, so it was a good bit of providence. So if you just just have enough babies, you'll be in there sometime with some famous person. Yeah, my time for having babies is long gone. It's long gone. Do you have grandbabies? I do. I have two grandchildren. Uh, they they're in Glasgow in Scotland. I have a granddaughter who's sixteen, uh, going on nineteen, and a grandson who's fourteen. Okay. And how often do you get to see them? Well, in the flesh, maybe twice a year. They're they're, uh. they're coming over in April. Uh, Rosemary, my wife, just was in Glasgow a few weeks ago. Uh, but of course, we see them on FaceTime. It, you know, living in 2023 is a whole lot easier. So we FaceTime not not every day, but probably every other day. Really, it makes a big difference. Yes. It's one of the good technologies. So, uh, can I say happy birthday? It was your birthday last week. It was. Um, Is this a big one? I've taken down all the balloons that were in this office. Uh, I was seventy last Tuesday. And how does that feel? 
Oh my goodness! I I think <laughs> I think I went through the collie wobbles at forty. Fifty and sixty were were non-events, but seventy just sounds really old. What are the collie wobbles? <laughs> Angst, fear. Oh, okay. Regret. All right. All right. Well, I'm forty-five, so I'm I'm halfway through the decade of the collie wobbles. I I can barely remember forty-five. And so uh, I, I announced to the congregation three months ago that I'm ready to retire. And I'll stay on uh, until they find someone. Um, they had a difficult time finding a replacement back in the 90s, and the church kind of split. It was vacant for like four years, and yeah. uh, the older folks talk about the, the four years in the wilderness. So to try and avoid that, I'm going to stay on until they, they find uh, my replacement, and, and that might take a while. And... Uh... When was so you came in 2013, 10 years ago? Well, well you came, I came on. I came on in that. 2011 as yeah. the as the evening preacher for Sinclair Ferguson, and had two wonderful years uh, of close ministry. I've known Sinclair all my life, but uh, they were two very precious years. And then when he left. Um, you know, it it was it was the thought in Sinclair's mind when he asked me to come to be the evening preacher that I would then become the senior minister. But we're a Presbyterian church, not an Episcopalian church, and uh, <laughs> right. so they did have to go through the motions of uh, such committee. But in three months' time, um, I was called as the senior minister. So I've been senior minister for nine years, but I've been here eleven years. And when did Sinclair come? 2005. So he was here for seven years. I mean, that was, I mean, not not flattering you or Sinclair, but, I mean, to, to have Derek Thomas and Sinclair Ferguson, your, your morning and evening preacher, that's a, that's, a pretty good, that's a pretty good deal for that church. I don't know. You didn't watch the Super Bowl, so I can't say it was Tom Brady and Patrick Mahomes or something. That The illusion would be lost on you, but... That must have been a sweet time for the congregation and for you, because I know what, what good friends you and Sinclair are. It was a very sweet time for me, for sure. And I'm not always sure that the congregation realizes what they have. Um, when they hear it every week, when they were listening to Sinclair every week, you, you know, I sometimes wanted to sort of shake a few of them and say, don't you, <laughs> don't you realize what it is that you're listening to here? Um, but this congregation loves preaching. Um, of all the congregations, I, I, I say all, but I've only been in three congregations. Um, and this one, for sure, uh, you can hear a pin drop when you, when you mm. preach. There's, a, there's something about the architecture and the position of the pulpit and the balconies wrapped around you, uh, and you can, have, you can have eye contact with almost everyone except the ones right in the back in the balcony. Um, but it's a, it's a wonderful place to preach. I've enjoyed it immensely. And what's, uh, what, what are you hoping to do in retirement? A, a good pastor preacher never really quite retires, but what's your plan for hopefully many more years? I'll continue with Ligonier and maybe, good. maybe, maybe do a little more if that's possible. Uh, I'll continue to teach. Um, you and I are both, uh-huh. RTS Charlotte. We never see each other, but I'm, <laughs> I'm typically there on a Thursday afternoon. I'm there Wednesday um, morning. Right. Uh, and, I, and I've asked Ligon, the chancellor, if I can continue. And he said, yes, continue until I drop. I, I'll, I'll stop before I drop. But yeah. But I, so I, enjoy, I enjoy that because I'm, I'm only teaching courses that I actually like teaching. Right. So, I can choose my electives. So you'll you'll stay in the Carolinas. Yes, this is home. Our friends are here now, and um, we we love Columbia. Um, I know it gets mocked by Charleston and Greenville, and um, right. probably Charlotte too. But uh, there's there's something of a character about the city, and uh, you're 
you know, you're two hours away from the beach and you're two hours away from the mountains. Not, not that we go that often. But, <laughs> right. You know. <laughs> we got a zoo. My, my family goes down for the zoo. We have, we have family that my, my brother-in-law and his family live in Lexington. So they live just outside of Columbia. So we, yes, I'd forgotten it. Yes. Yeah. Do you go yeah. to the zoo often? No, when, no. When the grandchildren were smaller and they came to visit, we would take them to the zoo. But it, it's a good zoo. Well kept. So I, uh, we'll get to life and ministry in just a minute. But while, while you're on Columbia, so I'm reading a, a, a book on, uh, oh, I have it right over there. But it's called something like Sherman and the Burning of Columbia. So the perennial question, and I'm, I'm not going to, I don't have a dog in this fight, but uh, who burned Columbia? We're coming up on, it was in February of 1865, toward the end of the Civil War. And then there's there's been a long debate. Did Sherman order it? Uh, did he allow it to happen? Or was it a, a, an, a, a bunch of things, drunken soldiers and cotton in the in the streets that were burning, and it really wasn't Sherman's fault. So not asking you to settle that 150-year-old debate, but do those sort of things uh, still come up? What What's the—is that still part of—not maybe that issue, but that's still part of Colombians' identity 150 years ago and what happened in the Civil War? Yes, I mean, they still talk about uh, Sherman's troops and the damage that they— did to the city and and the surroundings. Um, that conversation comes up quite a lot. There's a there's a story, and it's not it's not provable. It sounds a wonderful story, and it, and it's it sounds as though it might have happened, but it might have been embellished and it might have been made up. But the caretaker of First Presbyterian Church, it was a different building than the one now. Um, but in the same location, same spot, it's been there for 228 years. Um, it was established in, in uh, 1795. And uh, when Sherman's troops came through, they asked, where was First Presbyterian Church? And the caretaker pointed to First Baptist across the road, and they burnt it down. <laughs> I think now, I David know. Calhoun tell that story, I think, in yes, yeah, in his history. David wrote a history of uh, First Pres, oh, 25 years ago now, I think. And um, it's a wonderful book. I love, I love book, I love books on a church's history. I love the one that, that Phil Riken edited years with, uh, with Boyce on the history of 10th. There's one uh, that Sean Lucas worked on with First Pres Jackson that you're familiar with, and then this one. I'm sure there's many others, but especially these old churches, I just love to read of the stories. And they're hard stories to tell because yeah. it, it, any church, Southern church, that lived through the period of slavery and, and the Civil War, I mean, there's good things and bad things and ugly things. and They were on the wrong side of some— yeah some really egregious things. I, I didn't, I guess I had forgotten uh, and I was just looking at David Calhoun's book, but Thornwell married a Witherspoon. Right. Yeah. I mean, I, I think not a descendant of John Witherspoon, the signer, but you know, a shirt tail cousin or something, but there's the Witherspoons basically settled in South Carolina. James Henry Thornwell, you know, is an immense figure from the 19th century and, and was a minister here. I have to right. pinch myself to think that I, I'm in the same church as he pastored. He was a relatively young man then. Um, but I, I, I say quite often that his view of the ruling elder, that, that part of his ecclesiology, the, the office of the ruling elder, still dominates first press. Mm. When, you, when you sit in a session meeting with 48 elders um, and you ask yourself, who's in charge here? Well, it's not me. It's, it's this body of men. Um, and I think that's an inheritance that has been passed down generationally from James Henry Thornwell. So l- let's, let's go back and we'll work our way up to the to the present. Uh, I'm going to start with a book that you didn't write, but I bet you've read this book by uh, your good friend, and, and I've met him several times, but you're very close to Jeff Thomas. You've read this book, uh, 
So In the Shadow of the Rock, Reformation Heritage Books, it just came out the end of last year. Jeff Thomas was for over 50 years pastor in uh, Aberystwyth, am I saying that correctly, in Wales. And it's a wonderful book. Uh, this is not a paid advertisement. It's just, you should read Jeff Thomas's. He's he's still alive and he's, uh, I'm going to be with him at a PCRT conference. So wonderful preacher, wonderful legacy there at that Baptist church. And he's kind of apologetic in here. Huh, why am I writing an autobiography? But it really is so fascinating to read because it's mostly stories about the professors he had at Westminster in the 60s and the, the people that he's met. And he has uh, several pages here toward the end about his friend Derek Thomas. Look, if you're watching this on YouTube, you can see, look at this lovely picture there of the two Thomases. Uh, so what what role did Jeff Thomas play in the conversion or early discipleship of Derek Thomas, and why are there so many Thomases in Wales? Well, I became a Christian uh, in Aberystwyth in my first year. Uh, I grew up 38 miles away uh, on a farm. Uh, social historians will tell you that, that the generation that came uh, back from World War II identified with the church but never went. And then the generation after that didn't identify with any church. So that, that's the history, br briefly, of, of Christianity in Britain in the, in the 20th century. But in, in the 1960s, when I was a teenager, um, I wasn't an atheist, but I'm, I'm certainly an agnostic. I was a math major and a physics major. So I thought that science had all the answers. And uh, I told my grandfather, my paternal grandfather, that I was going to Aberystwyth University. And he was then in his 70s, and he lived until he was 96. And he said, that's the furthest I've ever been from home. And that was 38 mm. miles. Um, in my first semester, my best friend in high school, who was also a physics major, but at a different uh, university, sent me in the mail, John Stott's Basic Christianity. And I thought, what in the world? Uh, but I read it over the Christmas break, and within three days, I'm I'm on my knees saying the sinner's prayer. I, I'm sure theologically it was awful, but but um, I went I went to the local uh, Anglican church um, that my mother associated with, and I told the vicar uh, that I'd been saved, and he said. No, you haven't," he said. "Come, come and see me tomorrow." And I went to see him in his in his home, and we talked about all kinds of things, rugby and and sport and and cars and 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 he gave me as he went. He said, "Too much religion is a very bad thing," and he gave me a what? copy of Paul Tillich's "The Shaking of the Foundations." What a that's a that's like um that is the definition of, of of a millstone to hand a young Christian. I, I started reading it and I, you know I just I just couldn't understand it. I mean I wasn't I wasn't familiar with all the terms that they were using and and so I I, I left it. But when I went back to college, um, I went to the now you have to understand that at, in Britain you can drink at eighteen. So the center of a British university is the bar. I mean, that, mm. that's the, the lively spot of university. And I, I was familiar with the bar, but upstairs on a Saturday night, uh, the God Squad met at the InterVarsity Fellowship Thanks. Christian yeah. Union, which I which had never gone up to. But but when I went back to college, I went I went there on Saturday evening, and, and lo and behold, my future wife was there. Uh, she was also a math major as were several others. And uh, they asked me, where was, where was I going to go to church? And I said something like, you know, St. Martin's in the field or something. And they said, no, you're not. You're coming with us. And they took me to Jeff Thomas's church, Alfred Place uh -huh. Baptist Church. And that was the beginning of uh, a lifelong 50-plus um, years uh, of friendship with Jeff Thomas. Jeff Thomas was then preaching on Matthew's gospel. And uh, I ended up living in his third, um, third floor apartment for a year um, and have 
I've I've been I've been in touch with Jeff off and on for 50 years. Mm-hmm. And it's one of those relationships that when we see each other at a conference somewhere, uh, and he was he was in Mississippi last week, and he's, I think he's 85 now, uh, but he's still going strong. Yeah. Um, but I became a deacon in Alfred Place, uh, and then um, did a, did a, a kind of uh, internship at a church in Oxford for a year, uh, and then came to RTS um, in 1976. There's a, w- a wonderful story that I like to tell, that I was at the Banner of Truth Conference in 1976 in April in Leicester in England, and Sam Patterson, the president of RTS, and Dick DeWitt, who is a former senior minister here at First Prayers, but he was teaching systematics at RTS Jackson, and I had lunch with them, and I said, you know, I really, I had been attending a liberal seminary for about a year, and it was horrible. It was, every every class was a defensive scripture. I mean, and but you weren't you weren't moving from from first base. I mean, you, you were right. you were kind of stuck. And I said, I really, really would love to come to RTS, and what are the chances? And about three weeks later, in the mail, this is before email and stuff. Uh, I got a, I got a letter from Sam Patterson offering me a scholarship, and I called him on the phone. And calling the United States in the seventies was a big deal, yeah, uh, and it was expensive. So I I had an egg timer and I could turn it twice. So I had six minutes to get out what I needed to say, and and what I needed to say was that I'd been dating this girl for about three years. And I wasn't sure about leaving her for another three years. And Sam Patterson said, well, marry the girl and bring her with you. Yeah, good advice. <laughs> so in July, which was barely two months later, we got married. And two weeks later, we were in Jackson, Mississippi. Must have seemed like a different world. <laughs> you know, I'd read Tom Sawyer and Huckleberry Finn in high school, <laughs> uh, and it hadn't changed much. Yeah, right. <laughs> And uh, in the book, beginning of, of Jeff's book, well, all throughout, there's a lot about whales. And I imagine people listening to this, we got some people from all over the world, but a lot of Americans, I'm sure. And so people know about the UK, although it's confusing for us America. How many countries are there in one country? But England, Scotland, Wales, Northern Ireland. I would guess that Wales is the least known for uh, of most Americans. I just say I've been to England, Scotland, Northern Ireland many times. I'm ashamed to say I've never been to Wales. I apologize. What 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 do people not understand that they need to know about Wales? How is Wales like or unlike the rest of the UK? Well, Wales would have affinities with Scotland and Ireland because they are Celtic races mm-hmm. uh, and would identify, I'm, I'm being um, general now, but they would identify themselves as not English. Um, Most Wales, of the rest of the UK does right. that, yeah. Half of, half of the population speak Welsh as their first language and mm and many more would would speak Welsh as a second language perhaps and that that changes the culture a great deal um there are very few highways in Wales and that makes um that makes the country a little more insular i think and um i um i haven't lived in Wales for 50 years, and I haven't spoken Welsh on a daily basis in 50 years. I still, I still understand what people are saying if they mm. speak to me in Welsh. I just find it more difficult to reply these days. Right. Did you grow up speaking Welsh? Yes, I never spoke English to my father, and my grandfather didn't understand English. When I introduced really? Rosemary to him, um, the only thing that he could say was, how are you? And then, and then he started speaking in Welsh to me, and I, I had to translate. So, Derek, after training at RTS, 
you didn't start at RTS then. You went and you pastored for more than a decade in Northern Ireland. Is that right, in Belfast? I was 17 years at a, a EPC church. No relation to EPC in the, in the States. But this was a very conservative um, denomination, um, a, a, a bit like the OPC would be here mm-hmm. in in the states, and I was there for seventeen years. It was a uh, in the center of Belfast city, next to the university, and uh, it was a congregation of about one hundred and twenty, which which in British terms was, was a large congregation. Um, I was a solo pastor. There was no secretary. There was, you know, so you did everything. I did. I did the college ministry, the youth ministry, the wow. all the visitation, and and it was a congregation that expected you to visit in the home on a fairly regular basis. And um, um, I loved it. I, I I much prefer where I am now in a multi-staff church where there's camaraderie and and mm-hmm. you know there were often days. You were in your office at the church, and there was no one else there, and it was it would get quite lonely. Uh, and it was before um, internet and and text messaging and cell phones, so the the only communication that you were likely to get was was the landline. Um, but. Um, the church is still going strong, and and the the person who succeeded me, uh, who at one time had been a college student at the church, has done a wonderful, wonderful uh, work there. Uh, so it's it's a very strong congregation right now. But in '96, um, I had met Ligon Duncan. He had come over to the church for a wedding. He was doing his PhD on covenant theology in, in the patristics. And I had just begun my PhD on um, the uh, uh, Calvin and the book of Job. And so, so we, we, are, we were already texting back and forth and, and, or emailing back and forth. And then um, Uh, First President Jackson was vacant, and from out of nowhere, this search committee uh, got in touch with me and eventually brought Rosemary and me over to visit uh, the search committee. It was all on cloak and dagger stuff, and and, uh, um, I was there for a couple of days. And I knew, the only thing I knew was that there was one other candidate and that the search committee were divided. So I went back, and then a week later, uh, Ligon, who by this time was is teaching systematics at RTS Jackson, called me and said, "I want you to come uh, to RTS and teach." And and there, there was a, a a chapel role involved in the in the in the offer. And I I said to him, "I I can't I can't come to Jackson next week. I'm I was there last week." I said, "I I just." And there was a long pause, and he Why said, "Why were you there last week?" Yeah, he said, yeah. Uh, "Are you the other guy?" And I said, "Are you the other guy?" Oh. <laughs> <laughs> so eventually, of course, they called him, uh, and I took his job at RTS. And then, and your uh, friends, which, you didn't. There wasn't any kind no, of rivalry, well, and even more than that, he asked me to be the evening preacher. But the congregation. I mean, part of the search committee, this congregation did not know that I was the other guy. And uh, he told the congregation the day I left, the Sunday I left, which was um, 16 years later, uh, he he told the congregation this story, and, and evidently many of them just had no idea. And uh, you didn't ask them, did they make the right decision or not? They made the right decision. Yeah, sure. of course. I wasn't. I wasn't. Actually, I learned from him how to be a senior minister of a large congregation, mm. and I, I couldn't do what I do here if I hadn't sat under his ministry and watched him for, um, for sixteen years. Watched him handle difficult things in session. I watched him. I watched him handle things 
and avoid things, things, things right. you know, w things that were a priority and things that definitely were not a priority, and and you just let them go. Um, and learning that was 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 wonderful. And he's been, you know, he's he's one of my closest friends. He's my boss, but he's... well, he's he's my he's everyone's boss, Derek. He's my boss. <laughs> yes. He is, you know, Pope Ligon. We all pay our respects and homage. Uh, the, but the greatest. The greatest privilege I had was was officiating at his daughter's oh. wedding a couple of years ago. Yeah, very sweet. She's in Greenville now. Yes, smart girl. Very smart yeah. girl. Very smart. I I, it, I sometimes here in Charlotte teach the pastoral ministry class, so I haven't done it for a couple of years because I've been filling in and doing the ST stuff, uh, which I love doing. But one of the things I talk about in the pastoral ministry is just. I often tell people, being a pastor of a large church, uh, I, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't say it's necessarily harder. In fact, just what you said, I think there are some things about being a solo pastor at a small church that are much harder than having the shared ministry, lots of people. You're not So I want people to be dispelled from the notion that, you know, it's, it's the best pastors out there who are the pastors of the large churches, not so. However, I think it is true, there are unique challenges about being at a large church. So it's not that the—I think often I feel like the pastors I know at 100, 200, 300-person churches, I think, objectively are just better pastors than, than I am, just caring for people, visiting with people, being in people's lives, which is more difficult to do that with uh, folks at a larger church. But there are different challenges, and you hit on some of them. It's, uh, to say it's political makes it sound nefarious, and that's not what I mean. But you put it well. What issues that you have to get into and what issues to stay out of, how to navigate. I mean, you said you have 40-some elders, so we have over 40 elders on our session. So it's a very different dynamic. When I was at University Reformed Church, also a great church, uh, when I got there, there were six elders. When I left, there were 12 elders. Very different session meetings with six or 12 elders than with 40-plus elders. How, how have you—what what do you really enjoy about being at a larger church? What are some of the challenges or things you miss from being for 17 years at a church of a couple hundred people? Some of the challenges uh, would be that if you have 3,000 members— as, as we have, uh, you don't know half of them. Right. You don't even you don't even know their names. Um. You know, when I was in Belfast, I I knew everybody. I had been in everybody's home. Um. But here, I I know some people, and I know some people really well. Uh. And and it's a tricky thing navigating that because. I'm pretty sure that some folk, I was going to use the word jealous, that if you have close friends, uh, and and it's inevitable that you have some who are closer than others. I mean, that's inevitable. Um, Jesus did, so. Right, <laughs> right. Uh, the session, you know, 48 elders, and, you know, they are strong elders, some stronger than others. Uh, they have lots and lots of opinions. Uh, and I think in COVID season, that, 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 mm. that magnified. I think in COVID season, everybody got rattled and everybody wanted to express their opinion about everything twice or three times. And I've noted, I, I mean, up until COVID, um, almost all decisions that we made at session were unanimous. Mm -hmm. I mean, just, they were just unanimous. But I've noticed since COVID that that hasn't been the case. And, um, but it's a very, very strong session. Um, they take their, they take their uh, role very seriously. Um, but in, you know, the, the more members you have, the more pastoral problems you have. And, and uh, sadly, you know, in the church, you, you have some of the worst pastoral uh, problems, uh, and in a small church, those those issues would be it would be hard to keep them quiet. It would 
but in a large church, stuff goes on that most of the church has no idea right. that it goes on. And it's very easy to make an allegation that in large churches, there is no discipline, you know, that discipline is ignored. And I, I, would, I would push back on that. There is discipline, but it's done, it's done more quietly. And it's not done, um, you know, it's not done at the session meeting. It's done in the pastoral care committee. Right. Um, but, uh, I mean, it, it, there's often an allegation that in large churches, discipline is just ignored. Um, yeah, we have our shepherding committee, and th those guys are in the trenches, and... I'm not on the shepherding committee, but they'll come, you know, usually when it's, hey, we're coming to d discipline one of our members, and can you weigh in? What do you know about? So th they are absolutely doing the work, and uh, we, you know, one of the, one of our mantras here is we say people are always going to fall through the cracks, but our job is to make the cracks as small as possible and that people have to look for them to find them. We don't want big cracks that everyone just comes to a big church to fall through. Uh, in any church, big or small, people some people will look for the cracks and try to hide out there, but our role is to make them as small and as difficult to get into as possible. And if you crawl into them, hopefully as loving shepherds, we're looking for you and trying to care for you. But you're you're right. There are those those pluses and minuses of being at a at a big church. And there's things that big churches can do that small churches can't. So I always tell our students, bigger is not better or badder. It's a it's a different size and it takes just a little bit of a different mindset. How, Derek, how have you thought about this is somewhat a selfish question because I've wrestled with this. Uh how have you thought about straddling the the seminary church world, the academic pastoral world. Way back when I was in university, I remember sort of thinking, which which route do I want to go? And I have no doubt that the Lord set me on the right route, which is pastoral ministry. And I love having a foot in the, the RTS seminary world and doing some of that. But you you've done the reverse, or at least I think that was Jackson, was really primary seminary role, and then also preaching most weeks at a local congregation. How have you thought about the interplay and the proportion of those two things in your own calling? I, I think that I've been spoiled. Um, I, I have the best of all possible worlds. Uh, I love theology. I love reading. Um, I've, I've always loved theology. Um, but first and foremost, I'm a, I'm a preacher. That's how I think of mm -hmm. myself. And I'm, I have no interest in uh, theology um, that can't be preached. So I, I, I'm terrible about teaching prolegomena because I have, I have almost no interest in it. And, and is it Turretin that has four volumes? Am I picking up the right? Turretin has three. Don't say anything three. bad about Turretin or the floor will open up underneath you. But th that, that early section on prolegomena, I, mean, right. I, I just, I just kind of weighed myself through it. Well, that's um, Bavink that's got the one whole Bavink. volume out of the four of prolegomena. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I've, never I've, I've only read the last page of volume one of Bavink. <laughs> So, uh, no, I, I, I hear you. You want to be able to preach it. Yes, yes. But I, I like the fact that because you're engaged in systematic theology all the time, that you're, you're preaching. I mean, the Westminster Divines in, in the Directory for Public Worship has that little section on preaching, which is probably the finest summary of preaching in four pages that's ever been written, but but they have a very definite view of what preaching is, and it's not it's not uh, sounding like a commentary, which too many sermons do. And, true. and I, yeah. I listen to a ton of sermons, and I think just give me the commentary. I mean, I can I I know exactly where you're getting all this from, but it's finding the doctrines that are in the text, and. Um, and I, th I think that when you teach systematic theology, inevitably, that's, that's how you preach. Um, 
But I, I just love the fact that I dip my toe uh, in the in the in the academy uh, once a week, and then I I go back to the the real world, which is the church. Yeah. Um, you drive up I, here every week. Why why aren't why aren't we having lunch or something? You need a place to stay. Yeah, we, we need to we need to do that. It's it's an hour and twenty minutes, an hour and twenty five minutes. Uh, because RTS is on the south side of right. um, Charlotte, you can avoid. Uh, I mean, if you could avoid Rock Hill, it would be a, a lot easier. Um, but um, we have eight, eight interns here at the church, and I, you know, I tell them you're 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 going to experience something that only big churches can do, and in all likelihood, you may never experience this ever again, probably. But because the church is big, it can do more stuff. It can be engaged in more stuff. And um, it's, uh, it, it's one of the blessings, really, of, of, a, of a large church. Well, we have, uh, I, I have students all the time from Columbia, from your church. They do very well. I know you have some, uh, you have some folks that finished up or are, fin- are still going through classes at RTS and some from Charlotte. We can talk about them later. So it's a good pipeline there. I, I want to go back a little bit of a rabbit trail, but you mentioned uh, Westminster Divines and preaching and running commentaries. At the risk of sounding heretical here, I do fear that, okay, I, I am all 100% for expository preaching. I do fear, however, that some of us, especially in the reform camp, we equate that with, I must give an explanation of almost every word, almost every verse as we go through a passage, which tends, and I'm, I'm saying, physician, heal thyself. I can have this same tendency, and I, I think I did earlier in ministry when my sermons were even longer. I, I got to say everything in here. And I think we can sometimes feel like, well, if I jump out to a, a doctrine, that's probably too much systematic theology. If I go to a big theme, well, that's topical preaching. And that's oh, that lightning will, will come right down. Uh, how have you navigated? I think I remember reading you had a chapter in the Feed My Sheep book. Uh, you know, that was 25 years ago or something. It was a collection of essays, maybe. I don't remember who edited it. But I think you talked about this, some some false ways of in, in mistakes in expositional preaching. How have you thought about that in your own ministry? How have you helped your interns think about preaching so that there is the the connection with the congregation, the, the unction? It's, uh, I think, in most of our reform circles that you and I would be in, men are generally handling the text in a faithful, truthful way. That wouldn't be my main objection. It would be this other kind of, is it really a sermon though? Yes, I hear you and I'm, I'm on the same page. Um, I, I, I tell, uh, I tell guys all the time, uh, if you're turning over, uh, 15 or 20 pages of notes, uh, maybe, maybe, maybe you've got a full manuscript in the pulpit. Um, I don't know what it is you're doing, but it's it, you're not engaging with, with the people. So get rid of your notes. Um, I have one small piece of paper with just a few words on it. Uh, I, I usually have the three or four points that I want to make. Uh, a scribble down an illustration or so, but. Anyone looking at them probably could make very little sense of, of what's there because 99% of the time I want to be looking in the mm-hmm. faces of the congregation. I, I think I've been talking to Sinclair about this in the last few months that a lot of preaching is cerebral today. And I, I think RTS is, is turning out preachers that, that are, and this is my institution that I love, we're turning out brilliant expositors. Um, when I hear students saying to me, how long does it take you to prepare a sermon? And they say, you know, 36 hours. And I'm thinking, what in the world are you doing? I mean, if, it, if it's taking you 15 hours to translate the passage 
Greek is not your thing. Right. You know, get get a good translation and stick with it. Um, you know, how many commentaries are you reading? I mean, I, I think as a young preacher, I mean, I would have consulted maybe 20 commentaries. And uh, currently, currently I'm preaching on Colossians and I'm not consulting any commentary. Now, granted, I know right. the New Testament better after 50 You've years. You've probably preaching. preached through it before. You've read commentaries. Many, many times. Um, but there's not, there's not enough affection in preaching. Um, the, 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 the wooing quality, mm-hmm. you know, that appeals to not just the mind, but appeals to the will and appeals to the heart and the affections. And I don't, I don't know if you can teach that. I think it's better caught than taught. Yeah, I think so. I just read um, James Alexander's book, Thoughts on Preaching. You've probably read that before. I, I hadn't read it before. Of course, Archibald Alexander's son, and this was put together really almost like Pascal's Pensées. It's, it's little snippets of thoughts and then some essays appended at the back. Uh, it's not the book I would give to a first-year homiletics class because it presumes a certain cerebral atmosphere and intellectual apparatus. But I found it very moving, uh, even correcting at times, because he really leans into what you're saying about the spirit in preaching, about freedom in preaching, about, uh, you know, you're going to do probably your best sermon work close the books and go on a walk and think and pray and write down. And I, I know some of the the worst sermons I've preached have been cramming 15 books and ideas into trying to get it all. And I think some of the best ones have been a salient point or two comes into my head. And I've tried manuscript preaching because I find most, I think most guys in our circles do that. At least when I preach at some big conferences, Afterwards, people will say, hey, we want to turn this into a conference book. Can all of you guys submit your manuscripts? I feel like, am I the only one who doesn't preach from a manuscript? So I've tried manuscripts, and some people do it well. John Piper preaches from a manuscript. You wouldn't, I don't think you can tell that he does. David Platt does. A lot of guys do. Um, I can't, I don't feel free when I, when I do that. I've tried preaching absolutely no notes. That's what I learned in Haddon Robinson from Gordon Conwell. I found at least early in ministry that took so much time cramming points. So I've each year I, I shrink down, you know, a few pages of notes. I'm not quite at one page, but have you always done it that way or has your sermon preparation and delivery changed over the years? So so what's the camera? This yeah. is this is one of my sermons from just a few weeks ago. Um it takes me an hour per sermon, and if if I if I haven't got three points and and an introduction in in an hour, it's going to be a long day. Um, if I if I have the three points that I want to expound on, I'm good to go. Even if I have nothing else except those three points, I I can preach a sermon. It's not going to be the best sermon in the world, um, but we all have files in our head. That when, when you, I mean, yesterday I was on Union with Christ, and, and so the, the file on Union with Christ in your head just, just gets opened up. Um, you know, illustrations and applications, and how do I want this sermon to end? That's, that's an important thing. How are you going to end? Are you going to end on a high note, a low note? Um, and I can take the dogs for a walk for an hour and think about that. And I, and I think that that comes better away from the desk and, and away from the temptation of, I've, I've got to get one more reference to a book here. Um, I'm, not a, I'm not a quotation guy much. If, if, if it's more than one line, I, I'm not going to use it. Um, and... Uh, You know, it's 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 probably different strokes for different folks. Um, but it, you say an hour? You only take an hour? Yeah. 
All right. Well, that's 70 years of, well, 50 years. Well, as a, as a young preacher, if you were preaching on Second Samuel, you, you, you probably didn't even know the story well. Right. Right. You didn't know who these characters were. You didn't know the background of 9th, 10th century BC and what life was like. But after 50 years, you, you, you know more. Right. You know, you know what the Babylonian Empire was, or you know what the Assyrian right. Empire was. You, you know about the Roman Empire. Um, so, so a lot of that background stuff is, is in your head. Um, at least enough, enough to say some broad brush characteristics in a sermon. You're not writing yeah, a paper with footnotes. Right. I've heard Ligon, I'm sure many people have said, but I remember after one of Ligon's T4G talks where he was doing all sorts of great stuff in the Old Testament, and somebody said, how long did it take you to put that sermon together? He said, well, my whole life. I mean, to, to some degree, it's it's bringing, it, it's cumulative, it multiplies. There are some things that, as a young man, you, we can do better or have more energy or more related, but there are things that accumulate with knowledge, with wisdom, that hopefully makes some aspects of the job a little bit more manageable than they once were. And it's some of those, yeah, some of those connections. What are, what are some of your favorite books on preaching? Well, Lloyd Jones's book, it's not a, it's not a beginner's book. Uh, it's a book for a, a fairly established preacher just to uh, address some issues that, you know, preaching and preachers, uh, I still love that. I love Virgin's quirky uh, yeah. book on 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 preaching. Um, I, I haven't enjoyed so much the more recent books on preaching because they preach in a different style to me. So, but my, my go-to is the Directory for Public Worship. In, in it really is good. Yeah, you're you're not exaggerating when you say. The best four pages on preaching, yeah. maybe ever written, certainly in English. Yeah. yeah. Uh, let me mention now. Ask just a couple more questions. Uh, I always forget. I'm supposed to a mid episode book, so end episode book. Come, Lord Jesus, also published by Crossway, John Piper's newest book. Uh, my last life and books and everything was with. John, so if you're listening or didn't see that, you can listen to that conversation about his new book, Come Lord Jesus, grateful for desiring God and the ministry there of John and so many other people and their support of this. So it's just been released and encourage you to look at WTS Books. It's currently 40% off. If you don't look at WTS Books first, you're missing some good deals that you could buy from somewhere else besides Amazon. So you can check out that book at WTS Books. I want to ask uh, just a couple more things, if you have a few more minutes, Derek. I was looking at your list of books. There are many, some 15 or more, but a number of these titles, Heaven on Earth, What the Bible Teaches About the Life to Come, Strength for the Weary, How the Gospel Brings Us All the Way Home, uh, The Storm Breaks, Job Simply Explained, Help for Hurting Christians, and of course, you did your PhD on Calvin's sermons on Job. So was this a conscious... Uh, direction of your ministry to think about, I just see a lot there about suffering in heaven. Did that come, have you noticed that before? Was that an intentional, this is something that means a lot to me in my life and I want to write and preach about this? Where did that come from? Well, it came from pastoral ministry, but it also comes from um, the fact that I'm a Celt and, and therefore I'm fairly introspective. Yeah, and um, I'm prone to um, dwell uh, on certain things. I've I've had I've had moments of suffering in my life for sure, but um, and most of them, most of the books I've written have have been sermons at some point, mm -hmm. um, a series, and. Uh, you know, in a congregation like ours, there are a couple of hundred people who are just passing through enormous, oh, yeah. awful trials, and uh, and 
you know, thinking on those things which are above where Christ sits at the right hand of God is um, is the way, I think, to live the Christian life. So thinking about the world to come, thinking about heaven, um, thinking about that we sit in heavenly places uh, in Christ Jesus. I mean, all of those are, are, are vitally important. So as you think back on, uh, you just had your 70th birthday, you've announced at some point in the next year, year and a half, retiring. What, what, what convictions, what truths did you, that you started out with have just become even more clearer, more vibrant? You know, I had one older minister tell me one time, there are some things that looked black and white and at the end of his ministry, they looked gray, and there were other things that looked gray and now seem black and white. What, what would you put in those categories? Anything that's become even more convinced of? And on the other side, anything you've, you've changed your mind on? Yes, without sounding, um, you know, too strong about it. Um, I, I think that most conservative reformed preachers begin with their feet on the legalistic side. Mm. Um, you know, I, I've just read the book that of yours that's just about to be published and you asked yep. me to, to puff yes. it. And, Thank uh, you for and your first, first chapter was on first John and, and, and very well written. But I tell students on a fairly frequent basis, don't preach on First John in the first fifteen years of your ministry because you're going to sound like a legalist, right? And for me, um, understanding the shape of the gospel uh, is is more important. And and it sounds strange to say this, but it's more important to me now than it was fifty years mm. ago. To be able to preach First John and not sound like a legalist. Um, and you can't do that unless the gospel is firmly set before you. You know, that, that at every point you're saying, nothing in my hands I bring simply to the right. cross I cling. Um, so, uh, and, and it's in my head because I'm in Colossians and I've just preached a couple of sermons on legalism at the end of Colossians chapter 2. Uh, and it touched uh, a nerve and a lot of people in the congregation, for mm. sure. Um, I am more convinced now than I was 50 years ago of the inerrancy of Scripture. Here, here. And, and that without a firm commitment to the inerrancy of Scripture, there is no future. It is a slippery slide to oblivion. And so in, in our woke culture, in the pressures that are on the modern church that weren't on the church that I entered 50 years ago, of gender and, and, and LGBTQ stuff and, and, and all of that, that, that the only answer to that is the inerrancy of Scripture. And if you let go of that doctrine the church is finished. One generation, two generations, it'll be gone. Yeah, and, and you'll think the, that you're you'll think that you're just making a very savvy accommodation to to win a, a hearing or an audience and we'll just change a few words, we'll just avoid a few subjects and you don't know that you're you're what what are saying, you know, you you shoot yourself in the foot, and you're shooting your grandchildren in the heart. So last question, Derek. Uh, this is life and books and everything, so we love to talk about books. I'm just going to open it up, and it's an impossible question because I know you love books. Give us just a, a couple authors that jump into your head that have been most formative for you as a Christian, as a minister, old books, new books, you got open floor, people listening to this. What books, and let's just narrow it a little bit to think about maybe 
pastors or church leaders, although it doesn't have to be about Christian ministry per se, what are some of the, the best, most important books that have been in your life or authors? Well, anything and everything that Sinclair Ferguson has written, I have read multiple times and it's gotten me into some trouble, as you know. And um, But he, he, he has been the most influential person as to the way I think about a doctrine. Mm-hmm. Um, and to the extent that I, I, if I read a book two or three times, I, I can, it's, it's filed in my head so I can, I can pull it out. Um, my early days, uh, I was introduced to the Puritans and, um, it's the Puritan, um, interest in, in application, mm-hmm. um, and not just application at the end, you know, too many sermons will have five minutes before it closes. He'll say, now let me say something by way of application. Right. And as if everything else, as if the doctrine is not application, doctrine is application to the mind. So, so I, 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 that's a false dichotomy to me. Um, Calvin has been an obsession all my life, um, and because of, of my doctoral work in Calvin, um, and and Calvin's sermons are very simple. Um, it's amazing how how simple he was when he preached, um, mm-hmm. and uh, his consistency in in you know, lecture, lecture, continue preaching, mm-hmm. preaching uh, through books of the Bible. Um, I've read every book I think that you've written, uh, and you have uh, you have a unique style I think to appeal, especially to a certain generation. Um, um, I've uh, I've been blessed by. Um, Scottish authors, for sure. Yeah. Um, and and nineteenth century Scottish authors uh, who wrote who wrote at a level that would would not be publishable today. I don't think Crossway would would allow you to publish books. Uh, you know, I, I think I think you think of Bannerman or Buchanan or yeah. or yeah, yeah. I mean, their prose was 19th century, right? Uh, and our prose is is, is different. But um, I'm a uh, I, I read I read less commentaries now than I used to. Yes, yeah, because they're yeah. they're all saying the same thing. You know, it's it's very rare to pick up a commentary and think, oh, this is this is a brand new idea here that I've not seen anywhere else. Yeah, find the two or three that have called all of the insights before them and, you know, read Carson's on John or whoever is, is the leading one. And then a couple, and then a few old ones. I often start a sermon series with, here's, I got 10 commentaries. And after a few weeks, it's, I don't really need to read these three. Right. I'm with you. So anything else? Any other books or authors you wanted to commend? Um, I, um, I consistently like, um, you know, Al Mohler's writings, uh, and, and, uh, the books that he has published, I've enjoyed very much. Um, I've been blessed, uh, I've been blessed by knowing R.C. Sproul as a, Mm -hmm. as a friend, um, I don't know how that came about. It was just a providential thing that we became friends, and uh, everything that he wrote uh, is 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 wonderful. Um, and though dead, he still speaks. Yeah. Uh, his commentary uh, on the Westminster Confession is is just wonderful. I would recommend all elders and deacons to 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 read it. We we recommend it here. Well. We insist that they read it here. We insist it, yeah. <laughs> um, 
it's a it's a good summary of the Westminster Confession, and he had a way of handling doctrine that the ordinary person in the pew could understand it. Yeah, he had it a, was he had genius. A, he had a fantastic mind, and I've I heard him speak one on one at a depth that you never would have heard him speak in the pulpit or at a conference. Um, but his his understanding of philosophical matters was was second to none. Uh, but the ability to bring that down to a level that the ordinary person can understand, that, that was genius on his part. Derek, thank you for your friendship for many years. I remember you were, I don't know when we first met, but years ago, remember you came and you spoke at an RCA event. I was leading this RCA renewal group and you flew in and you did that for us vagabonds in the RCA and you've preached here at Christ Covenant and I've been able to be there at First Pres. So we'll have to pulpit swap sometime. But thank you for your ministry, your books, your friendship, your preaching. Uh, I will, uh, I will. So you got an 830 service. So if we don't have our Sunday school in the morning, so I get don't have to be at church till 10 or something some of those Sundays I'll I'll have you up and and listen to a sermon or if if it's not you sometimes Alistair Begg I was in Colorado a few weeks ago preaching at a different church so with the time change I was able to watch your service and listen to your message on Colossians so keep up the good work and thank you for this thank you for taking the time to be here thank you to everyone for listening to Life and Books and Everything until next time glorify God enjoy him forever and read a good book Mm -hmm.